This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 21 It was after sunup now, but we went right on and didn't tie up. The king and the duke turned out by and by, looking pretty rusty. But after they jumped overboard and took a swim, it chippered them up a good deal. After breakfast, the king, he took a seat on the corner of the raft, and pulled off his boots and rolled up his breeches, and let his legs dangle in the water so as to be comfortable, and lit his pipe, and went to getting his Romeo and Juliet by heart. When he had got it pretty good, him and the duke begun to practice it together. The duke had to learn him over and over how to say every speech, and he made him sigh and put his hand on his heart. And after a while, he said he'd done it pretty well. Only, he says, you mustn't bellow out Romeo that way, like a bull. You must say it's soft and sick and languishy. So, Romeo. That is the idea, for Juliet is a dear, sweet, mere child of a girl, you know. And she doesn't bray like a jackass. Well, next they got a couple of long swords that the Duke made out of oak laths and begun to practice the sword fight. The duke called himself Richard the Third, and the way they laid up on and pranced around on the raft was grand to see. But by and by the king tripped and fell overboard, and after that they took a rest, and had a talk about all kinds of adventures they'd had in other times along the river. After dinner, the duke says, Well, Capit, we'll want to make this a first-class show, you know, so I guess we'll add a little more to it. We want a little something to answer encores with anyway. What's encores, Bilgewater? Well, the Duke told him, and then says, I'll answer by doing the Highland Fling, or the Sailor's Hornpipe, and you... Well, let me see. Oh, I've got it. You can do Hamlet's Soliloquy. Hamlet's which? Hamlet's Soliloquy, you know, the most celebrated thing in Shakespeare. Ah, it's sublime, sublime. Always fetches the house. I haven't got it in the book. I've only got one volume, but I reckon I can piece it out from memory. I'll just walk up and down a minute and see if I can call it back from recollection's vaults. So he went to marching up and down, thinking and frowning horrible every now and then. Then he would hoist up his eyebrows. Next he would squeeze his hand on his forehead and stagger back and kind of moan. Next he would sigh. And next he'd let on to drop a tear. It was beautiful to see him. And by and by he got it. He told us to give attention. Then he strikes a most noble attitude with one leg shoved forwards and his arms stretched away up and his head tilted back, looking up at the sky. And then he begins to rip and rave and grit his teeth. And after that, all through his speech, he howled and spread around and swelled up his chest and just knocked the spots out of any acting ever I see before. This is the speech. I learned it, easy enough, while he was learning it to the king. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would fardels bear till Burnham Wood do come to Dunsinane, but that the fear of something after death murders the innocent sleep? Great nature's second course, and makes us rather sling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others we know not of. There's the respect must give us pause. Wake Duncan with thy knocking, I would thou couldst, for who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, 
the law's delay, and the quietest which his pangs might take, in the dead waste and middle of the night, when churchyards yawn in customary suits of solemn black, but that the undiscovered country, from whose bourne no traveller returns, breathes forth contagion on the world, and thus the native hue of resolution, like the poor cat in the adage, is sicklied over with care, and all the clouds that lowered o'er our housetops, with disregard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. But soft you, the fair Ophelia, ope not thy ponderous and marble jaws, but get thee to a nunnery, go! Well, the old man, he liked that speech, and he mighty soon got it so he could do it first rate. It seemed like he was just born for it, and when he had his hand in and was excited, it was perfectly lovely the way he would rip and tear and rear up behind when he was getting it off. The first chance we got, the Duke, he had some showbills printed, and after that, for two or three days as we floated along, the raft was a most uncommon lively place, for there were nothing but sword-fighting and rehearsing, as the Duke called it, going on all the time. One morning, when we was pretty well down the state of Arkansas, we came inside of a little one-horse town in a big bend, so we tied up about three-quarters of a mile above it, in the mouth of a creek which was shut in like a tunnel by the cypress trees, and all of us but Jim took the canoe and went down there to see if there was any chance in that place for our show. We struck it mighty lucky. There was going to be a circus there that afternoon, and the country people was already beginning to come in, in all kinds of old shackly wagons and on horses. The circus would leave before night, so our show would have a pretty good chance. The Duke, he hired the courthouse, and we went around and stuck up our bills. They read like this. Shakespearean Revival. Wonderful attraction for one night only. The world-renowned tragedians David Garrick the Younger of Drury Lane Theatre, London, and Edmund Keane the Elder of the Royal Haymarket Theatre, Whitechapel, Pudding Lane, Piccadilly, London, and the Royal Continental Theatres, and their sublime Shakespearean spectacle entitled The Balcony Scene in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo, Mr. Garrick, Juliet, Mr. Keane, assisted by the whole strength of the company, New costumes, new scenes, new appointments. Also, the thrilling, masterly, and blood-curdling broadsword conflict in Richard III. Richard III, Mr. Garrick, Richmond, Mr. Keene. Also, by special request, Hamlet's immortal soliloquy. By the illustrious Keene, done by him three hundred consecutive nights in Paris, for one night only, on account of imperative European engagements. Admission twenty-five cents, Children and servants, ten cents. Then we went loafing around town. The stores and houses was most all old, shackly dried-up frame concerns that had never been painted. They was set up three or four foot above ground on stilts, so as to be out of reach of the water when the river was overflowed. The houses had little gardens around them, but they didn't seem to raise hardly anything in them but jimson weeds and sunflowers and ash piles and old curled-up boots and shoes pieces of bottles and rags and played out tinware the fences was made of different kinds of boards nailed on at different times and they leaned every which way and had gates that didn't generally have but one hinge a leather one some of the fences had been whitewashed some time or another but the duke said it was in columbus's time like enough there was generally hogs in the garden and people driving them out all the stores was along one street they had white domestic awnings in front, 
and the country people hitched their horses to the awning posts. There was empty dry goods boxes under the awnings, and loafers roosting on them all day long, whittling them with their barlow knives, and chawing tobacco, and gaping, and yawning, and stretching, a mighty ornery lot. They generally had on yellow straw hats, most as wide as an umbrella, but didn't wear no coats, nor waistcoats. They called one another Bill, and Buck, and Hank, and Joe, and Andy, and talked lazy and drawly, and used considerable many cuss words. There was as many as one loafer leaning up against every awning post, and he most always had his hands in his breeches pockets, except when he fetched them out to lend a chaw of tobacco or scratch. What a body was hearing amongst them all the time was, Give me a chaw of tobacco, Hank. Can't. I ain't got but one chaw left. Ask Bill. Maybe Bill, he gives him a chaw. Maybe he lies and says he ain't got none. Some of them kinds of loafers never has a cent in the world, nor a chaw of tobacco of their own. They get all their chawing by borrowing. They say to a fellow, I wish you'd lend me a chaw, Jack. I'd just this minute give Ben Thompson the last chaw I had, which is a lie pretty much every time. It don't fool nobody but a stranger, but Jack ain't no stranger, so he says, You give him a chaw, did you? So did your sister's cat's grandmother. You pay me back the chaws you've already borrowed offen me, Leif Buckner. Then I'll loan you one or two ton of it and won't charge you no back interest nother. Well, I did pay you back some of it once. Yes, you did, about six chaws. You borrowed store tobacco and paid back niggerhead. Store tobacco is flat black plug, but these fellows mostly chaws the natural leaf twisted. When they borrow a chaw, they don't generally cut it off with a knife, but set the plug in between their teeth, and gnaw with their teeth and tug at the plug with their hands till they get it in two. Then sometimes, the one that owns the tobacco looks mournful at it when it's handed back and says sarcastic, Here, give me the chaw, and you take the plug. All the streets and lanes was just mud. There weren't nothing else but mud. Mud as black as tar, nigh about a foot deep in some places, and two or three inches deep in all the places. The hogs loafed and grunted around everywheres. You'd see a muddy sow and a litter of pigs come lazing along the street and wallop herself right down in the way where folks had to walk around her, and she'd stretch out and shut her eyes and wave her ears whilst the pigs was milking her, and look as happy as if she was on salary. And pretty soon you'd hear a loafer sing out, Hi, so, boy! Sick'em, Taj! And away the sow would go, squealing most horrible, with a dog or two swinging to each ear, and three or four dozen more are coming. And then you would see all the loafers get up and watch the thing out of sight, and laugh at the fun and look grateful for the noise. Then they'd settle back again till there was a dog fight. There couldn't anything wake them up all over and make them happy all over like a dog fight, unless it might be putting turpentine on a stray dog and setting fire to him, or tying a tin pan to his tail and seeing him run himself to death. On the riverfront, some of the houses was sticking out over the bank, and they was bowed and bent and about ready to tumble in. The people had moved out of them. The bank was caved away under one corner of some others, and that corner was hanging over. People lived in them yet, but it was dangersome, because sometimes a strip of land as wide as a house caves in at a time. 
Sometimes a belt of land a quarter of a mile deep will start in and cave along and cave along till it all caves into the river in one summer. Such a town as that has to be always moving back and back and back because the river's always gnawing at it. The nearer it got to noon that day, the thicker and thicker was the wagons and horses in the streets, and more coming all the time. Families fetched their dinners with them from the country and eat them in the wagons. There was considerable whiskey drinking going on, and I seen three fights. By and by, somebody sings out, Here comes old Boggs, in from the country for his little old monthly drunk. Here he comes, boys. All the loafers looked glad. I reckon they was used to having fun out of Boggs. One of them says, Wonder who he's a gwine to chaw up this time. If he'd a chawed up all the men he's been a gwine to chaw up in the last twenty year, he'd have considerable reputation now. Another one says, I wished old Boggs had threatened me, cause then I'd know I weren't gwine to die for a thousand year. Boggs comes a-tearing along on his horse, whooping and yelling like an engine, and singing out, Clear the truck thar! I'm on the war path, and the price of coffins is a guana raise. He was drunk and weaving about in his saddle. He was over fifty year old and had a very red face. Everybody yelled at him and laughed at him and sassed him, and he sassed back and said he'd attend to them and lay them out in their regular turns, but he couldn't wait now because he'd come to town to kill old Colonel Sherburne, and his motto was, Meat first and spoon vittles to top off on. He sees me and rode up and says, Where'd you come from, boy? You prepared to die? Then he rode on. I was scared. But a man says, Oh, he don't mean nothing. He's always a-carrying on like that when he's drunk. He's the best-naturedest old fool in Arkansas. Never hurt nobody, drunk nor sober. Boggs rode up before the biggest store in town and bent his head down so he could see under the curtain of the awning and yells, Come out here, Sherbin. Come out and meet the man you've swindled. You're the hound I'm after, and I'm a gwine to have you too. And so he went on, calling Sherbin everything he could lay his tongue to, and the whole street packed with people listening and laughing and going on. By and by, a proud-looking man, about fifty-five, and he was a heap the best-dressed man in that town too, steps out of the store, and the crowd drops back on each side to let him come. He says to Boggs, mighty calm and slow, he says, I'm tired of this, but I'll endure it till one o'clock. Till one o'clock, mind, no longer. If you open your mouth against me only once after that time, you can't travel so far, but I will find you. Then he turns and goes in. The crowd looked mighty sober. Nobody stirred, and there were no more laughing. Boggs rode off blackguarding Sherburn as loud as he could yell, all down the street, and pretty soon back he comes and stops before the store, still keeping it up. Some men crowded around him and tried to get him to shut up, but he wouldn't. They told him it would be one o'clock in about fifteen minutes, and so he must go home. He must go right away. But it didn't do no good. He cussed away with all his might and throwed his hat down in the mud and rode over it, and pretty soon away he went a-raging down the street again, with his gray hair a-flyin'. Everybody that could get a chance at him tried their best to coax him off his horse so they could lock him up and get him sober. But it weren't no use. Up the street he would tear again and give Sherburn another cussin'. By and by somebody says, Go for his daughter, quick! 
Go for his daughter. Sometimes he'll listen to her. If anybody can persuade him, she can. So somebody started on a run. I walked down street a ways and stopped. In about five or ten minutes, here comes Boggs again, but not on his horse. He was a-reeling across the street towards me, bareheaded, with a friend on both sides of him a holt of his arms and hurrying him along. He was quiet and looked uneasy, and he weren't hanging back any, but was doing some of the hurrying himself. Somebody sings out, Boggs? I looked over there to see who said it, and it was that Colonel Sherburn. He was standing perfectly still in the street and had a pistol raised in his right hand, not aiming it, but holding it out with the barrel tilted up towards the sky. The same second I see a young girl coming on the run and two men with her. Boggs and the men turned round to see who called him, and when they see the pistol the men jump to one side and the pistol barrel come down slow and steady to a level, both barrels cocked. Boggs throws up both of his hands and says, Oh, Lord, don't shoot! Bang! goes the first shot, and he staggers back, clawing at the air. Bang! goes the second one, and he tumbles backwards on the ground, heavy and solid, with his arms spread out. That young girl screamed out and comes rushing, and down she throws herself on her father, crying and saying, Oh, he's killed him! He's killed him! The crowd closed up around them and shouldered and jammed one another with their necks stretching trying to see and people on the inside trying to shove them back and shouting, Back! Back! Give him air! Give him air! Colonel Sherburn, he tossed his pistol on the ground and turned around on his heels and walked off. They took Boggs to a little drugstore, the crowd pressing around just the same and the whole town following, and I rushed and got a good place at the window where I was close to him and could see in. They laid him on the floor and put one large Bible under his head and opened another one and spread it on his breast. But they tore open his shirt first, and I seen where one of the bullets went in. He made about a dozen long gasps, his breast lifting the Bible up when he drawed in his breath and letting it down again when he breathed it out. And after that, he laid still. He was dead. Then they pulled his daughter away from him, screaming and crying, and took her off. She was about sixteen, and very sweet and gentle-looking, but awful pale and scared. Well, pretty soon the whole town was there, squirming and scrounging and pushing and shoving to get at the window and have a look, but people that had had the places wouldn't give them up, and folks behind them was saying all the time, Say now, you've looked enough, you fellas. Tain't right and tain't fair for you to stay there all the time and never give nobody a chance. Other fellas has their rights as well as you. There was considerable John back, so I slid out, thinking maybe there was going to be trouble. The streets was full, and everybody was excited. Everybody that seen the shooting was telling how it happened, and there was a big crowd packed around each one of these fellows, stretching their necks and listening. One long, lanky man, with long hair and a big white fur stovepipe hat on the back of his head and a crooked-handled cane, marked out the places on the ground where Boggs stood and where Sherburn stood, and the people following him around from one place to t'other and watching everything he done and bobbing their heads to show they understood and stooping a little and resting their hands on their thighs to watch him mark the places on the ground with his cane. And then he stood up straight and stiff where Sherburn had stood, frowning and having his hat brimmed down over his eyes and sung out, Boggs! And then fetched his cane down slow to a level and says, Bang! Staggered backwards. Says, Bang! Again! And fell down flat on his back. The people that had seen the thing said he'd done it perfect, said it was just exactly the way it all happened. 
Then as much as a dozen people got out their bottles and treated him. Well, by and by, somebody said Sherburn ought to be lynched. In about a minute, everybody was saying it. So away they went, mad and yelling, and snatching down every clothesline they come to to do the hanging with. Chapter 22 They swarmed up towards Sherburn's house, a-whooping and raging like injuns, and everything had to clear the way or get run over and tromped to mush, and it was awful to see. Children was heeling at the head of the mob, screaming and trying to get out of the way, and every window along the road was full of women's heads, and there was nigger boys in every tree, and bucks and winches looking over every fence, and as soon as the mob would get nearly to them, they would break and scattle back out of reach. Lots of the women and girls was crying and taking on, scared most to death. They swarmed up in front of Sherburn's palings as thick as they could jam together, and you couldn't hear yourself think for the noise. It was a little twenty-foot yard. Some sung out, Tear down the fence! Tear down the fence! Then there was a racket of ripping and tearing and smashing, and down she goes, and the front wall of the crowd begins to roll in like a wave. Just then Sherburn steps out onto the roof of his little front porch with a double-barrel shotgun in his hand and takes his stand, perfectly calm and deliberate, not saying a word. The racket stopped and the wave sucked back. Sherburn never said a word, just stood there looking down. The stillness was awful creepy and uncomfortable. Sherburn run his eyes slow along the crowd, and Reverett struck. The people tried a little to outgaze him, but they couldn't. They dropped their eyes and looked sneaky. Then pretty soon, Sherburn sort of laughed, not the pleasant kind, but the kind that makes you feel like when you're eating bread that's got sand in it. Then he says, slow and scornful, The idea of you lynching anybody. It's amusing. The idea of you thinking you had pluck enough to lynch a man. Because you're brave enough to tar and feather poor friendless cast-out women that come along here. Did that make you think you had grit enough to lay your hands on a man? Why, a man's safe in the hands of ten thousand of your kind, as long as it's daytime and you're not behind him. Do I know you? I know you clear through. I was born and raised in the South, and I've lived in the North, so I know the average all around. The average man's a coward. In the North, he lets anybody walk over him that wants to, and goes home and prays for a humble spirit to bear it. In the South, one man all by himself has stopped a stage full of men in the daytime and robbed the lot. Your newspapers call you a brave people so much that you think you are braver than any other people, whereas you're just as brave and no braver. Why don't your juries hang murderers? Because they're afraid the man's friends will shoot them in the back in the dark. And it's just what they would do. So they always acquit. And then a man goes in the night with a hundred masked cowards at his back and lynches the rascal. Your mistake is that you didn't bring a man with you. That's one mistake. And the other is that you didn't come in the dark and fetch your masks. You brought part of a man, Buck Harkness there, and if you hadn't had him to start you, you'd have taken it out and blowing. You didn't want to come. The average man don't like trouble and danger. You don't like trouble and danger. But if only half a man, like Buck Harkness there, shouts, lynch him, lynch him, you're afraid to back down, afraid you'll be found out to be what you are, cowards. And so you raise a yell and hang yourselves on that half a man's coattail and come raging up here, swearing what big things you're going to do. The pitifulest thing out is a mob. That's what an army is, a mob. They don't fight with courage that's born in them, but with courage that's borrowed from their mass. 
from their officers. But a mob without any man at the head of it is beneath pitifulness. Now the thing for you to do is to droop your tails and go home and crawl in a hole. And if any real lynching's going to be done, it'll be done in the dark, southern fashion. And when they come, they'll bring their masks and fetch a man along. Now leave and take your half a man with you. Tossing his gun up across his left arm and cocking it when he says this. The crowd washed back sudden and then broke all apart and went tearing off every which way. And Buck Harkness, he healed it after them, looking tolerable cheap. I could have stayed if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I went to the circus and loafed around the backside till the watchman went by and then dived under the tent. I had my $20 gold piece and some other money, but I reckon I better save it because there ain't no telling how soon you are going to need it away from home and amongst strangers that way. You can't be too careful. I ain't opposed to spending money on circuses when there ain't no other way, but there ain't no use in wasting it on them. It was a real bully circus. It was the splendidest sight that ever was when they all come riding in, two and two, a gentleman and lady, side by side, the men just in their drawers and undershirts, and no shoes nor stirrups, and resting their hands on their thighs, easy and comfortable. There must have been twenty of them, and every lady with a lovely complexion and perfectly beautiful, and looking just like a gang of real sure-enough queens, and dressed in clothes that cost millions of dollars, and just littered with diamonds. It was a powerful fine sight. I never seen anything so lovely. And then, one by one, they got up and stood and went a-weaving around the ring so gentle and wavy and graceful, the men looking ever so tall and airy and straight, with their heads bobbing and skimming along, away up there under the tent roof, and every lady's rose-leafy dress flapping soft and silky around her hips, and she looking like the most loveliest parasol. And then faster and faster they went, all of them dancing, first one foot out in the air, and then the other, the horses leaning more and more, and the ringmaster going round and round the center pole, cracking his whip and shouting, Hi! Hi! And the clown cracking jokes behind him, and by and by all hands dropped the reins, and every lady put her knuckles on her hips, and every gentleman folded his arms, and then how the horses did lean over and hump themselves. And so one after the other they all skipped off into the ring, and made the sweetest bow I ever see, and then scampered out, and everybody clapped their hands and went just about wild. Well, all through the circus they done the most astonishing things, and all the time that clown carried on so it most killed the people. The ringmaster couldn't ever say a word to him, but he was back at him quick as a wink with the funniest things a body ever said. And how he ever could think of so many of them, and so sudden and so pat, was what I could no way understand. Why, I couldn't have thought of them in a year. And by and by, a drunk man tried to get into the ring. Said he wanted to ride. Said he could ride as well as anybody that ever was. Well, they argued and tried to keep him out, but he wouldn't listen. And the whole show come to a standstill. Then the people begun to holler at him and make fun of him. And that made him mad, and he begun to rip and tear. So that stirred up the people, and a lot of men begun to pile down off the benches and swarm towards the ring, saying, Knock him down! Throw him out! And one or two women begun to scream. So then, the ringmaster, he made a little speech and said he hoped there wouldn't be no disturbance, and if the man would promise he wouldn't make no more trouble, he would let him ride if he thought he could stay on the horse. So everybody laughed and said, all right, and the man got on. The minute he was on, the horse begun to rip and tear and jump and convert around, with two circus men hanging on to his bridle trying to hold him, and the drunk man hanging on to his neck, 
and his heels flying in the air every jump, and the whole crowd of people standing up and shouting and laughing till tears rolled down. And at last, sure enough, all the circus men could do, the horse broke loose, and away he went like the very nation, round and round the ring, with that sot laying down on him and hanging to his neck, with first one leg hanging most of the ground on one side, and then t'other one on t'other side, and the people just crazy. It weren't funny to me, though. I was all of a tremble to see his danger. But pretty soon he struggled up a straddle and grabbed the bridle, a reelin' this way and that, and the next minute he sprung up and dropped the bridle and stood, and the horse a-going like a house afire, too. He just stood up there, a-sailin' around as easy and comfortable as if he weren't ever drunk in his life, and then he begun to pull off his clothes and sling them. He shed them so thick they kind of clogged up the air, and altogether he shed seventeen suits, and then there he was, slim and handsome, and dressed the gaudiest and prettiest you ever saw, and he lit into that horse with his whip and made him fairly hum, and finally skipped off and made his bow and danced off to the dressing room, and everybody just a-howling with pleasure and astonishment. Then the ringmaster, he see how he had been fooled, and he was the sickest ringmaster you ever see, I reckon. Why, it was one of his own men. He had got up that joke all out of his own head and never let on to nobody. Well, I felt sheepish enough to be took in so, but I wouldn't have been in that ringmaster's place, not for a thousand dollars. I don't know. There may be bullier circuses than what that one was, but I never struck them yet. Anyways, it was plenty good enough for me, and wherever I run across it, it can have all of my custom every time. Well, that night we had our show, but there weren't only about twelve people there, just enough to pay expenses, and they laughed all the time, and that made the Duke mad, and everybody left anyway before the show was over, but one boy which was asleep. So the Duke said these Arkansas lunkheads couldn't come up to Shakespeare. What they wanted was low comedy, and maybe something rather worse than low comedy, he reckoned. He said he could size their style. So next morning he got some big sheets of wrapping paper and some black paint and drawed off some handbills and stuck them up all over the village. The bills said, At the courthouse for three nights only, the world-renowned tragedians David Garrick the Younger and Edmund Keane the Elder of the London and Continental Theatres in their thrilling tragedy of The King's Camelopard or The Royal Nunsuch. Admission 50 cents. Then at the bottom was the biggest line of all, which said, Ladies and children not admitted. There, says he, if that line don't fetch them, I don't know Arkansas. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece.